Unlike the Gilgamesh epic, where Gilgamesh himself had to close the door, he closed the hatch. It is written explicitly that the Lord closed the door. To point to the text as being rooted in history and to say, yes, it happened, but then to try to tone down the geological components don't tend to add up to me. I believe in a global, universal, catastrophic flood of epic proportions. This is what your pastor didn't tell you today. I am on with Dr. Dustin Brulette. We're going to be talking about the flood. We're going to talk about whether it's local, whether it's global. We're going to talk about his research as he is a scholar on the topic, and he's going to be great to give us some extra insight into helping us understand the biblical text. How are you doing today, Dr. Brulette? I'm doing very well, Zach, and uh, feel free just to call me Dustin. Oh, okay, Dustin, friend. All right, so uh, before we get started, I wanted everyone to see... I got this at Goodwill. It's um, perfectly timed. Just got it the other day. It's more of a children's thing, but it, it works out for the theme. That's a fabulous find. <laughs> and it didn't cost over $100. <laughs> so uh, for those that aren't aware, aware of like your work and your background, can you give us an intro into your education and just a little bit about your background? Sure. So I work at Miller College of the Bible. There's actually three different campuses up here in Canada. We have one in British Columbia, one in Saskatchewan, and one here in Manitoba. I work at the one in Winnipeg, and we have a joke up here as Northerners. We call it Winterpeg Manisnova. And I know that you're from America, but the nice thing is, is that minus 40 degrees Celsius is minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's still cold no matter what. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. All right. Now tell us about your, your, what, what, what's your, what work have you done on the flood? Well, I have a PhD in Old Testament from McMaster Divinity College. My supervisors were Dr. Gus Conkle and Dr. Mark Boda, and my external examiner was Carol Kaminsky. And my book or my dissertation project was on a rhetorical critical analysis of Noah's flood. And so what I did was I studied Genesis six through nine using the rhetorical critical approach to try to determine what the emphasis of the text is. And mm -hmm. my basic conclusion is, is that the emphasis of the text is on salvation over and against judgment. Hmm. Interesting, okay. All right, and you also wrote a book as well as maybe written some papers. So uh, maybe we could talk about a little bit about the papers too, but uh, specifically your book. Uh, can you tell us what, what the summary, the conclusions, the, the main gist of what you were arguing in it? Well, the book is actually a revision of my dissertation. So it was revised for publication and has the same conclusions as my dissertation, but with a lot more statistical evidence and a lot more numerical analysis in terms of the actual mm -hmm. verse by verse analysis of this verse pertains to judgment. This verse pertains to uh, salvation. Uh, this usage of, of totalic universalistic language, the reference or the sense pertains to judgment over and against uh, uh, salvation, etc., etc. So the book itself is called Judgment and Salvation, and it's a revision of my dissertation. Awesome. Okay. All right. So uh, we could dig that into that later. Uh, but but for those you know just turning it tuning in maybe not familiar with the stream 
I want people to uh, just get a bit of background, a little bit about your background as far as how you're looking at the the text as re regards to local or hyperbolic or global or however you interpret it. So could you just give us your view on how you how you look at that that question? That's a great question. So what really intrigued me about the flood was I read a footnote in Bruce Waltke's uh, Zarvan <laughs> yeah. commentary on hyperbole. And he says, and, and I recognize that nowadays this one particular term is considered somewhat offensive. So uh, be, re uh, be aware that I am using it within the context of a quote. He says, even accounting for oriental hyperbole, the author or the scribe of Genesis still has in mind a universal flood. And then he goes on to say at the end of this footnote uh, that he's not in a position to adjudicate on flood geology. And he gives pros and cons, uh, listing different authors as to why uh, flood geology is either for or against the biblical text. But that emphasis on even accounting for oriental hyperbole, the author has in mind a universal flood. Now, there are certain authors, uh, such as Peter Enns, for instance, who differentiates between a universal flood versus a global flood. But when I watch movies and, you know, the universal sign comes across the screen, what's behind that label? A giant globe. So some people want to differentiate between universal and global, but I believe in a global, universal, catastrophic flood of epic proportions. And part of the reason why I believe that is due to the specificity and technical nature of even the terms used for the flood. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, the term is mavul, and it's not used very often. It's used in the Psalms a little bit, and it's used in Genesis, but there's other words for floods or downpours or torrential natures of hydrologic activity, but only one technical term for this particular event, the mavul. Mm -hmm. Similar to the New Testament, we have this Greek word that uh, we can render into English as basically a cataclysm. It's used in Peter, and it's used in certain other contexts, but basically it's a technical term. They had other words for a local, uh, a localized flood or a localized geological hydrological event, but they use this particular term. And the other thing that I also find intriguing or stimulating about a universal versus a local versus a global flood, however you want to put it, is with respect to the author of Hebrews. When the author of Hebrews is discussing Noah, he says, by faith, Noah built the ark. And then it says, having not yet seen. One of the challenges that I face from a biblical theological perspective is there would have been rivers that would have flooded their banks all the time in the ancient Mesopotamian regions. What was so unique and what was so dramatic about this particular event in history that Noah did not see if this was such a commonplace event and yet the text highlights that he did not yet see. I think that something very unique happened with respect to the flood that made this flood of a different nature and of a different event than a traditional a regional or localized flood that would have been a relatively speaking quite commonplace. Hmm. That's really, really interesting. I, I never heard of Hebrews being used for justification for this. Uh, I know there's a lot of weird stuff going on with the, the not seen 
idea and he was 11. I'd love to dig into that some other time. So, uh, you, you, so how, you tell us about like, obviously you said that, you know, the text uses words that, that are only, that I guess you would think that is only really used of like, you know, the big, the big, big stuff. Uh, but obviously it could be referring to like, you know, hyperbolic language, but you know, maybe the writer didn't actually think it was, you know, global or, you know, the entire world. So I think what, that's, what excellent, uh, that's a very astute observation and it shows a high degree of sensitivity to the literary nature of texts. I recently wrote an article and I gave a presentation on Zephaniah and hyperbole. Uh, right. Zephaniah 1 is basically an undoing of all creation, and it's in fact pointed to be worse than the flood, worse than Noah's mm. flood, because in terms of Noah's flood, the fish are purported to survive, but in Zephaniah 1, the fish are explicitly mentioned as being destroyed. And so it's actually mentioned in reverse order of creation. Creation begins with these certain creatures, you know, it goes, you know, the birds and the fish and the land animals and then humans. With respect to Zephaniah, uh, the, the key to detecting hyperbole is the method is the magic. Without a proper system for uh, the proper interpretation of uh, hyperbole, what counts as evidence? And so I extensively went through a procedure for detection and mitigation of hyperbole in Zephaniah. And so with respect to mitigation, that means let's imagine that your wife uh, cooked a meal and you said, this is the best meal I've ever had in my life. Now, what we usually mean by that is that was an excellent meal, which is one step below ultimate, right? That's the mitigation of hyperbole. So it's, it's what we mean in terms of we share an understanding when we use totalic and universalistic language that it's not false information because we have a shared understanding. But with respect to the flood, what I also find challenging is imagine if it was a global universal catastrophic flood, mm -hmm. how else could the author communicate it other than how that individual did? And so in Zephaniah, I believe that there's particular cues and particular reference points to understand that there's a shared understanding that this is universalistic hyperbole language. But in the Genesis flood, that same methodology seems to mm. indicate that despite the totalic universalistic terms employed, the referent or the sense has a different historical veracity than in terms of Zephaniah. And again, this comes down to methodology and regrettably without an effective method, uh, there's, it's very, very hard to actually discern and interpret these things. The method is always the magic. Hmm. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So obviously there's like, you know, tons of arguments of like, oh, you know, there's this in this passage, you know, the mountains are say that there's high, but yada, yada, yada. Um, I don't have time to go through. Well, we don't have time to go into all that today. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on that some other time, though. Uh, but that's really interesting. I, I appreciate that perspective there. So, okay, let's see here. Um, so you did mention the idea of like, you know, there's no other way they could have described it. 
which which you know that makes sense and in that way like it's hard to prove one way or the other if if the writer was trying to portray it as figurative or I mean, he was trying to portray it as universalistic but he was using all hyperbole then you know it's hard to, to differentiate which one it is um so how do you get from like it's hard to differentiate to like you know it, it we should think that it is you know portraying a global you know worldwide event i appreciate do you, do you understand what i'm saying well yeah. can i can i try to reframe just a little bit sure. is that okay zach please do what i think i hear you trying to say is hey that seems fairly convenient that zephaniah seems to not be indicating a historically uh verifiable uh global inundation of judgment but then in genesis it does how do you adjudicate between the two no One no not things that i found like that. very um, oh, okay. No, sorry, I, I I'm, you. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not claiming that I was clear. <laughs> um, uh, so no, what I was attempting to say was, when we look at the Genesis text, like take a view like Walton, where he's like, hey, you know, it's portraying itself as global, but it's just using hyperbole, and in those instances, it's it, it, the the same. It's it's imp the the same view would look the same way uh and 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 well i think i understand what you're saying yeah uh and let's Zephan imagine that the sure. author okay, let's imagine that the author is using hyperbole uh -huh. how would the author's use of hyperbole be any different than if he is in fact portraying a global catastrophic universal right. flood is that what you're saying right. yeah and yeah. and in that case it wouldn't be different well that's one of the things that i do find interesting and so going back to john walton and tremper longman they use mm -hmm. uh they have this book called the lost world of the flood i thoroughly appreciate that book it's one of the inspirations actually for my book it was one of the reasons why i actually wrote what i did because uh both tremper longman and john walton believe that the genesis text and the genesis scribes leveraged and employed hyperbole and rhetoric one of the things that they also said is that those terms are also applicable to noah's flood but when I did my own research and individual study on Noah's Ark, one of the things that I could not find a, a conclusion for is mm. if hyperbole was being used with respect to the dimensions of Noah's Ark, there's mm. no accounting for the numbers. And in fact, when people try to uh, aggrandize the numbers, for instance, there are certain people uh, who will try to say that the original impetus for the Ark was actually uh some type of barge or certain other ships that were uh well known within the time of uh an, an exilic uh, uh time of the israelites but when i look at the actual numbers there's no accounting for the numbers themselves apart from what would be considered a fairly face value approach there's no seeming uh way to account for those numbers using hyperbole using mm -hmm. rhetoric using all these different things to adjudicate it effectively so i did try and i did try to assess it could we be using hyperbole to discern these numbers i couldn't find an answer for it. the mm -hmm. numbers seem to want to be understood at face value the numbers seem to want to be understood as being the way that they ought to be understood in a wooden literal sense mm -hmm. 
So it seems so like when what I you're saying, the, yeah. Keep going. So when I look at the arc, when in a per, when a person attempts to add an inflation number, it doesn't actually make sense. The textual evidence, the historical evidence, uh, when you look at the the real research, the real academy, it doesn't add up. And it, I'm not trying to say that you have to read my book to get that. But it was one of the most intriguing and stimulating aspects of my research was I wanted there to be uh, hyperbole. I wanted there to be uh, rhetoric employed. And regrettably, I came to the conclusion, no, the, the text wants to be taken at face value. It was actually rather disappointing to me because it's easier to attempt to explain the text away using hyperbole than to explain how could the ark have been that large? And now how do we account for that? The text wants to be taken as being larger than life, but there's no way to account for the hyperbole in a rigorous fashion. The numbers ought to be taken at face value. So if I could uh, reset your position, it's basically, it seems like the numbers don't have like a specific rhyme or reason to why they would be, it seems like it's like almost random numbers to conclude if it if it was symbolic we'd see more rhyme or, or rhythm to it like well when we one could looks understand at the babylonian yeah when one looks at the babylonian text there's clear significance to the numbers in terms of it mm. being a perfect cube and in terms of its yeah. dimensions it recapitulates sacred space when you look at some of the author's work such as lloyd best's he tries to measure the, uh, the hand or the cubit and tries to account for different uh, boats that would have had something more in line with what we would recognize in today's. But the dimensions themselves of the ark are actually very interesting because they recapitulate the dimensions of a seagoing vessel that is actually nautically safe and buoyant. There's list and heel and all sorts of things that refer to how a, a, a boat tips or is prone to capsizing. And interestingly, the dimensions of the ark are even used today by modern streamers, uh, like modern uh, large ocean going vessels. And I find that very interesting because the dimensions themselves actually produce the safest type of uh, boat for something that is intended to float and not be sailed like there's no rudder there's no sails there's nothing to try to steer or direct this ship and so some of the twisting and turnings that are often used for larger ships are often accounted for because of masts and other things but this is a big barge it doesn't have the same kind of issues and the dimensions themselves recapitulate all these different dimensions of a traditional nautical vessel that is uh, ship shaped for seafaring hmm yeah, it's really, really interesting. I'm certainly no expert on seafaring or, or what takes a... <laughs> but it is interesting um, yeah. because uh, in the Bill Nye versus Ken Ham debate, Bill Nye yeah. brings up uh, this issue in this debate saying that his, his forefathers were shipbuilders. And it is so fascinating that uh, Noah, uh, with respect to this ark, uh, that that history of seamanship is completely lost to all history of shipbuilding from that point on. That is an intriguing and very remarkable thing. So you think, well, 
I mean, do you conclude anything from it? Do you hypothesize any any reason why that would be? Why it would be almost lost? No, uh, I can't hypothesize anything. No, I yeah. can't. I know that Hugh Ross has given some pretty good evidence in terms of why the Ark could have been built and how it was humanly possible to do that. I also have looked into different things. Uh, Irving Finkel is a fascinating character. He recreated the coracle of the ancient Sumerian epics, but of course he couldn't build it to the dimensions that were uh, written down in their ancient texts. But he tried to reproduce it using ancient pitch and all these ancient methods. And his uh, there's a DVD documentary of it, and I just loved it. But what's interesting is that that particular coracle, after it gets to a particular shape and size, it's not seaworthy anymore. Like the actual dimensions of that type of boat, it, it, it won't work. But the dimensions of an ark, the way that are represented in scripture, they actually can do it. And there's some Korean tests that I also did with National Geographic and a few other videos that I looked into where they tried to capsize a, a boat like Noah's Ark. And discovered that there was nothing that they could do. They they couldn't make it sink. Hmm. Interesting. That's very interesting. I I've, I have not seen these. That's that's that sounds like a fun video. So, and let's let's take a day into the story of the the narrative of the Genesis flood here. So, in your book, you talked about this idea of blotting out, and I thought it was just a really really fascinating point that I haven't heard before. So. Basically, in Genesis 6-7, it says the Lord will blot out man from the face of the land. And that's in regards to, like, you know, removing man because, you know, they'd send evil and, and God's going to take them out. And, you know, obviously he's referring to the flood. But what what do you think is the significance of this blotting out? Like well, the specific the words I, used. The way that I perceive the significance of is... It traditionally can refer to an act of scribal activity where you are uh, what we would call you're wiping the slate clean. You are erasing something so as to make new. The flood itself, I believe, was meant to be a recalibration of the world or what we might call a hard reset. The blotting out, the wiping out, the scribal activity is meant to let's create a fresh start to start the story again and new so that blotting out is a scribal activity he's wiping the slate clean and so it's trying to point to the flood as a recreation event uh noah is being a new adam and the world itself as the the spirit of god the rock was hovering or brooding over the waters in genesis mm -hmm. 1 now the spirit is also re uh the it's brooding over the waters again and then the waters begin to assuage the waters begin to recede and the, the world is created anew again. It's a decreation, recreation theme. Hmm. Yeah, as it's a really, really fascinating one that's that's uh, been such, such an interesting question. Like, what is is the writer doing this, or what what is going on in this text? What is the 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 event supposed to mean to us, and how are we supposed to interpret it? And that's. Uh, there's so many different parallels with the the Genesis one and two compared to the the Noah flood, and it's like you know that can't be just a coincidence. Uh, some of the ones you described there. So, uh, in that regards, though, it seems like you know Genesis one is portraying God is good; He's created everything that's good. Then it goes from good to bad, 
and then bad to worse yeah bad to worse and then you know god essentially destroys it um and you know it's it's seen as recreating but that's been a challenge for a lot of people and i'd I'd like to to get your thoughts there because if you know god is all-knowing and he can see the future it seems really odd that he would have created it just for it to you know be destroyed and him have to recreate again it's like a lot of people have said like oh he messed up now this is the second try do you think that's what the uh, story scientist idea yeah yeah so how do you wrestle with that idea well i want to be very clear the flood is a horrific event it ought to create a deep awareness and respect for the gravity of sin. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins for the wages of sin is death. And so the soul that sins shall die. And people who often take umbrage with the flood, I like to point them back to Ezekiel because Ezekiel is even worse than the flood. And the reason why Ezekiel is even worse than the flood is Ezekiel makes clear you Israel, and with respect to Israel, where of course there's northern and southern tribes, but Ezekiel says, You have sinned so greatly that even if Noah, Job, and Daniel were alive, they wouldn't even be able to save their family. Noah, by God's mercy and God's providence, was able to bring his sons and their wives and his own wife into the ark with them. But Ezekiel makes clear only Noah, Daniel, and Job. They would have only been able to save themselves. So people who take umbrage with the flood also have to wrestle with a biblical theology of sin as well. Because Ezekiel says, you think the flood is bad? This is even worse. The soul that sins shall die. And so I think sometimes what we have to face is we have to face the true terror of what we have done before a holy God. When I look at this world, some people say, how can there be... uh, a God who is good with so much evil in this world. But sometimes I say, how can there be so many dirty people when there's so much soap in this world? It's very, very similar in terms of God has provided the means for redemption. We by nature uh, have a stony heart. We create a, 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 a world that is not in conformity to the way that our creator designed it. We abuse his systems. We don't follow his instruction manuals. And then we wonder why things don't work. Fortunately, God has created the capacity for us to have a new heart and to put a new spirit within us. Where when we align ourselves, the real question is, who knows how to live life better? Us or God? What Genesis is trying to say is, Okay, this is how you have chosen to live in this world. You made a mess of it. Now let's try it my way. Hmm. All too often, we lack the wisdom. We lack the insight. We lack the integrity. We lack the capacity to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to God and even to instill shalom within our neighbors and our communities. We don't love God with our whole hearts. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. So the Hamas, the violence that we see, it's perpetuated almost every day, even here and now. When you look at uh, almost every time you sign a contract, contracts are for suckers. 
And what they're really meant to do is they're meant to exploit and take advantage of somebody else. That is an injustice that eventually has the possibility to lead to escalated violence. When the book of Micah says, what does the Lord require of you? Well, one, to do justly, to live humbly, you know, to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's the same problem that the people of the time of Noah had. And that's our same problem today. We don't do justly. We don't love mercy. We don't walk humbly with our God. It's no different. And regrettably, anything that exalts itself against the name of the Lord ultimately will be brought down. Every high thing will be brought down because sin is a disgrace to any people, but righteousness exalts a nation. The Lord makes very clear, if you return to me, I will return to you. James 4, 8 says, draw near to the Lord and I will draw near to you. When we look at our world and our, and our sin nature and our disposition, what it ought to do is it ought to bring us to a state of humility before God because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble and a broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. The Lord looked on the earth and he saw that there was a righteous individual named Noah and he chose to spare him. When we look at the book of Ezekiel, he says, I know those who grieve over the city. Those who, uh, Walter Brueggemann would say, have the prophetic imagination. The people who uh, wet their bed with their tears, they lament and moan and travail over this world. Jesus himself said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how I wish to have you under my wings and you would not. There's only two types of people in this world. Those who say, Lord, your will be done. And those to whom God says, all right, your will be done. There's a way that seems right to an individual, but in the end, it leads to death. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I totally agree that, you know, the text of Genesis, especially the flood narrative and five and four and six are all certainly describing like, okay, sin is, you know, bad. Sin is, you know, it was it was May bad I, thing. I definitely would. Briefly, though? Yeah, sure. What do you? I what think, you think that we have a very hard time defining sin. What I mean by that is, sin isn't just bad. Okay. Sin is repulsive. Sin is disgusting. Sin mm-hmm. is literally the very reason why Christ had to die. If it wasn't for sin, there would be no need for redemption. And so one of the things that I think we sometimes wrestle with is we try to create an elevated system of injustice and an elevated system of wrongdoing and say, oh, well, I did this wrong as compared to they did that wrong. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that were it not for sin, Christ would not have had to have entered into this world. And when we look at the escalation of violence all the way from Lamech, Lamech says, what is good? He says, I know what is good revenge revenge is good because i am in the place of god whereas you look at joseph joseph says am i in the place of god his brothers think they're gonna that he's gonna take revenge on him after his father died he says am i in the place of god and he did not take vengeance on his brothers though he had the right and the capacity what genesis is trying to frame is what is good 
And ultimately, what it's trying to say is we don't know what's good. We think that there is a way that is good. But in reality, it's to do justly and to love mercy, the very thing that we do not. And Joseph did. To forgive wrongdoing is ultimately the only solution to violence in this world. Because without forgiveness, there's no capacity to bring about restoration. When a person watches Fiddler on the Roof and uh, Teviev starts to say, you know, if it was really all eye for eye and tooth for tooth, we'd all be blind and toothless. Only forgiveness gives us the capacity to bring about ultimate change in our hearts and our spirits. Hmm. Okay. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. That, that, uh, I appreciate the, the, the stress of the, the language of, um, you know, the meaning of sin and all that. So, uh, so back to what I was attempting to say. So, and, and four to six, it's, you know, it's showing sin as like, you know, escalating really bad so that, you know, God has to do something about it. And it's, that's certainly right that, you know, it's, it's making a point about sin being a bad thing. And while God is essentially, you know, recreating, he's, he's making a new world where it, the world wasn't, I guess, wasn't as bad. At the same time, a lot of people might say, hey, God could have just, you know, skipped all that and he could have created everything with just Noah and his family. So what do you, obviously God had, had to have a reason unless you think the narrative is just, you know, not true or, or fake or, you know, whatever made up, then you'd have to say God must have had a good reason to do all that, right? How do you explain like, why you think God did, didn't just start with Noah's family and at the beginning of everything? I think that that's a difficult question to answer in the way that it's being communicated or phrased, but allow me to Allow me to try to elaborate as much as I can. Yeah. I believe that God is a lover looking for a lover. And what I mean by that is when we call the church the bride of Christ, he mm -hmm. isn't trying to come alongside us in such a way that, no, he says to the church in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's writing to the church, to the people of, to the people of God. And he says, if you open the door, I will come in and I will dine with you. That's no different than in Proverbs 9, when woman wisdom is on the heights, crying aloud, saying, all who are simple, come, dine with me. But at the same time, there's woman folly saying, hey, I have all of this that I can offer you, but they do not know that her guests are among the dead. The Lord wasn't trying to create robots. The Lord was trying to find people. Jeremiah 29 states it very explicitly that you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The Lord knows those who are his own. And what I mean by that is his sheep hear his voice and they will follow him. It isn't as though why did the Lord not just start with Noah? It's more along this. Why do so many when the light of God shines on their life? end up like Adam and try to hide from him with fig leaves versus saying, here I am, Lord, redeem me, save me. It's because often our deeds are evil that when the light is shone onto us, we try to be like rats or cockroaches and we scatter. 
But in reality, the presence of God invites security, it invites satisfaction, and it invites the opportunity to find a relationship that is only available through him. What Noah's flood is really trying to do is it's trying to create the opportunity for people who have sinned against God to be in a relationship with him. And the only way to do that is through covenant. And so Genesis 6 introduces the key term covenant. Now, prior to that, there was no need for covenant because in a familial relationship, there is no covenant. There's no covenant between a son and a daughter or between a, a mother and a son because familial relationships are, are by their very nature ones of intimacy and security. But sin, having been introduced into the world, God needed a moderating schema. That moderating schema is the covenant. And God says, if you want to enter into a relationship with me, this is how it will be done. I will implement a covenant. Now, the question is, it's going to be a double-edged sword because it's kind of like the good news. Who is the good news for? Or let's say the day of the Lord, the, the, the great judgment day. Who is it? good news for it's good tidings for great joy for all those who bow the knee to the one lord and savior but to everyone else they're calling to the very mountains fall on us you see the same sun that melts wax hardens clay the same sun that grows the hay drowns the rat the disposition of our hearts it's a lot like when we go back to the chronicles of narnia and it's the magician's nephew and Aslan is singing the world into existence. He's singing Narnia into existence for the first time. And the two little children, when they hear Aslan's voice, they hear the song. But the uncle, the uncle only hears the roaring of a lion, a brute beast. Some people can hear the, the song. It's a sweet song. And other people can't. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'll have to think about that. So let's talk about the, 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 the fun conundrum. You actually wrote a paper about divine impassibility, which is basically, yeah. you know, God, God has an unchanging nature. And what that means, you can tell us in a second. But it, it seems like in the text, God is, is remorseful in some way, that, that remorseful about... I guess the people and the sin in the world, but for him to have an emotion like that, that implies that he didn't have an emotion at some point. So that means it seems like he's changing or he's, or something like that. Do you think that's just figurative or how do you work that out? Well, we know that there's no shadow of turning with our God in terms of he always remains steadfast to his character and his nature and his character and nature is to be altogether lovely altogether beautiful, altogether holy, altogether just, altogether merciful, altogether love. Now, with respect to that passage of Genesis 6, that particular term is only ever used elsewhere in Genesis with respect to the rape of Dinah, where it states that their brothers were indignant and in a rage for such a thing should not be done in Israel. That particular language of indignation in terms of anger is not used in the parallel passage of Genesis, which means that there is a precedent for the potential of anger being present in Noah's flood, but it's not there. 
the only divine emotion is grief. Now, metaphorically speaking, what divine impassibility means with respect to the flood is that the flood is the tears of God. It broke God's heart. You see, divine justice with divine tears is a far different cry than divine justice with anger. There is no precedent for anger in the Genesis 6 through 9 text, though it is present in the parallel passage with respect to the rape of Dinah, which Mm -hmm. states very uh, convincingly to me, in my opinion, that God was not some unmoved being with respect to his creation. It stirred him to his very soul. God is not an indifferent uh, cosmic being up there who is somehow removed from his creation. It broke his heart. And the flood was metaphorically the tears of God because it pierced him to his very heart. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Uh, but specifically, like, it's you're, it seems like you're saying, hey, he has emotions that broke his heart. But if God doesn't change, then how, how do we interact with that? It seems like that's a contradiction. Do you see that divine impassibility well, is something different? Uh J. Richard Middleton wrote an excellent blog post about basically how we try to compartmentalize Scripture in ways that Scripture uh, does not yield itself to. In other words, you try to implement a a categorical statement, like a systematic theology component such as divine Mm -hmm. impassibility, and the text itself, biblical theology will always trump systematic theology. And, you know, a cube has six sides— And if you try to take God out of the box, it forms the shape of a cross, which also has those, you know, the six dimensions, if that makes sense. We got to get God out of our box because whatever box we have him in, he will defy categories. He's not a robot. But when it comes to God does not change, it means that he will never change in terms of he will never be in conflict with his character. We ourselves, we do things that we, for instance, I, I made a vow to my wife that I'm going to honor her and love her and cherish her till death do us part, you know, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And yet you and I both know that I don't fulfill that vow. Every day I don't fulfill that vow. I fall short in so many ways. But the Lord, he doesn't. He always remains true to his promises. And all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. So with respect to divine impassibility, there's a little bit of Greek thought and philosophy that go into that systematic theological component. But I believe it's a good heuristic tool. It's a good way to begin to understand a biblical theology of the flood. But the key takeaway with respect to divine impassibility is God is not the unmoved mover. He has pathos with respect to the flood. And it's not directed towards anger. It's directed towards grief. It's lament. Hmm. That's really, really interesting. All right. So how much time you got left? I have as much time as what you want. Oh, you're too kind. All right. So so let's talk about the numbers in the text. All right. So you mentioned the numbers before. Uh, You seem to imply that you're open to taking some numbers in the text as maybe not symbolic, but... Uh, we'll talk about what you mean. So on, well, yeah, uh, 
could I could I just clarify just a little bit? Sure, why not? I think that one important detail, because I've gotten a little bit of flack from this from some people. Okay. Let's discuss the number with respect to chronology. Okay. And what I mean by that is this. When I calculated the chronology of the time span, because I had to figure out the literary narrative, like with respect to plot and character development, uh, some things go quickly and some things go slowly. So we've got a lot of time that transpired, and then all of a sudden in four chapters, we've slowed things down. But with respect to chronology, one thing that is also important is Noah's flood is dated with respect to the person of Noah very specifically to the fourth level. It says it took place in this amount of years of Noah's life on that day, in that month, on that very day. That's that's a fourth level thing, whereas some things, for instance, with respect to Amos is, you know, two years before the earthquake or, you know, in the year of Uzziah, I saw the Lord. But no other place that I'm aware of in Scripture gives to the fourth level. That detail I find to be a very important number because it's trying to provide an awareness of everything that comes previous and contiguous to it. In other words, the chronology of the flood is trying to say this is the beginning of a new age. And we even call that prime evil history, first age history. The dating mechanism of the flood is trying to say this is such a key event. We're going to shape all the rest events after it. It's a lot like A.D. versus B.C. This is the A.D.B.C. of the Old Testament. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's very helpful. So uh, this dig, this dives into it then. So I'll, I'll read your quote in the, in the text, and then you just maybe clarify what you mean or what your position is here. So you talked about number seven and number 40 in regards to the days of different parts of the narrative. So you said the function of the seven days is unclear. As such, it goes beyond the text to assume the animals occupied the ark for the duration of the seven days, or that seven days are required for all the animals to be accommodated on board. You also said, notably, the, the Gilgamesh epic records only seven days to build a craft of a much different scale and a flood that lasts only seven days. Like, so, while I mean, I think it's a serious, a, a really interesting coincidence that it's the number seven, because that's like the, the, the perfect or the, the number of completeness used by so many biblical writers and, you know, all across the, the ancient Near East. At the same time, obviously coincidences happen. So, question for you, do you think that that use of number seven is supposed to be symbolic or it is, you know, is that how much time it took for the, the animals to get on board? What are your thoughts? I appreciate your close reading of the text because sometimes people skip over the details, but I often repeat to my students that specific is terrific. And so your close <laughs> attention to details is something that I myself thoroughly appreciate. I want to draw attention to the fact that uh, the Gilgamesh epic has this very large craft that he could not have created in seven days. So within that schema, seven seems to be a literary motif. In other words, hmm. it seems to be a particular image to say, in the fullness of time, I did this. 
With respect to Noah and the Ark, there's a lot of sevens and a lot of forties. And those obviously forties represent sometimes a long period of time, sometimes representing trial and judgment or sometimes restoration in a new age. The chronology of Noah's flood is very, very complex and very, very difficult to disentangle oneself from. There's a particular footnote to Victor P. Hamilton, who actually endorsed my book, by the way. It's something nice. that I'm very, very pleased and proud of that he was willing to do that. But he says, if anybody can basically understand this chronology, good job. <laughs> That's a very rough paraphrase. But Michael Lefebvre wrote a book using liturgical calendars that for the first time has opened up a whole new awareness of the Noah's flood text with respect to calendar and the cult. And by cult, I mean, obviously, worship practices. And Michael Lefebvre's book is utterly fantastic. Now, there is another author by the name of Stephen Boyd, and he wrote a book called Grappling with the Chronology of the Genesis Flood. It's a fat, fat tome. <laughs> now, I myself am actually in conversation with Dr. Boyd because there's two sequels to that book. It's going to be a trilogy on the chronology of the Genesis flood. And what we're trying to discover is the use of the Vav consecutive. Have you ever heard of that term, the Vav consecutive, also called the sure Vav Giptol versus the Vav Kutol form. But basically the key is it's a linguistic term to try to say, is this particular verbal structure of Hebrew moving the narrative along or is it a sequential event? In other words, is this a particular type of verbal structure saying this, then this, then this? Or can it also mean this and at the same time this and at the same time this? Mm. Now, systemic functional linguistics is a very difficult discipline. But there are very few people more qualified than Stephen Boyd. And there's a few other people who are coming on board with that project as well. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to better discern Hebrew grammar and syntax to discern the verbal structure so that when it has a vav with a verbal form in the yiktol versus a vav with a verbal form in the ketal, is this meant to be understood in a sequential fashion? And if we can better understand the verbal forms, it will help us to better understand the chronology of the flood. Now, these are ongoing projects. Um, I believe that the next volume will be out within the next three years. And then within three years after that, the next volume will also be out. But grappling with the chronology of the Genesis flood, there's particular articles in that book that put, let's say, Walt Kean O'Connor's perspective on verbal form on its head. And the only people that I'm aware of who are producing as high quality work in this area is uh, uh, is Homestead actually, and of course he has a new grammar coming out soon that is based on linguistic uh, on systemic functional linguistics as well. So this is a very exciting time to be part of uh, Hebrew grammar. Although I recognize mm. it's not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> right. So uh, long story short is you think maybe something's going on there, but you're undecided at this point. Oh. To, to even begin to hypothesize, that's a challenge. Hmm. Wow, that, that's that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, and and um, and I don't want to get too I don't want to get too too involved, but predominantly most people are relying on the Masoretic text. 
Okay. With the Samaritan Pentateuch and what most people would call the Septuagint, uh, um, the LXX, like the Old Greek, uh, we have different chronologies and calendars as well. And so dealing with the full textual evidence is in it, in and of itself, another challenge too. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Uh, yeah. So you also mentioned uh, another way. Is you said orchestrating ways to wrangle the animals onto the ark are also unnecessary. So are you saying that we there's a, I would assume that you're implying that you know there's a lot of scholars that are trying to like what make mathematical calculations how they could you know wrangle or you know get all the arcs animals on the ark in seven days and you're saying that that's not necessary because you know we don't have to take it so literally is that a good way to put it one of the funnest things see regrettably when a person does dissertation research or writes a book or whatever not everything that they lean into is able to end up in the final published form but one of the funnest uh research projects that i did uh for this is looking at children's bibles and Noah's Ark. And there's an entire <laughs> book called, uh, uh, there's an entire book on this actually. And the Brick Bible, for instance, uh, like the Lego Bible, uh, yeah. you know, one of the things that I actually do with my students is I go to Value Village, I find a children's book on Noah's Ark, I pull it, I buy it, and then in class, we read it together and we pick apart the importations to the text. It's a lot like the nativity story of Christmas, how much we add to the text things and details that simply aren't there of our own imagination. With respect to the text, one of the things that I really appreciated about uh, the Russell Crowe movie of Mm -hmm. Noah was when all the creatures came to the ark, it showed it in the colossal scale and epic proportions you see Mm. you read certain books and they're all like well how did noah find all these animals he didn't have to find them this the text says that they came to him Mm. but once they came to him it is reasonable to assume that the same god who brought the animals to noah would equip those animals to also enter into the ark in a reasonable fashion. Now, in one children's book that I read, it was hilarious because Noah sets up his ramp and then all of a sudden these wildebeests come on and they they disrupt the whole ranks and Noah's like, oh, I've learned not to do that. And it's like, no, we, we, we that's an importation to the text that yeah. goes beyond it. The same God who brought all the animals to the ark, I'm sure found a way to make those animals get into the ark. And here's my evidence for that, biblically speaking. Unlike the Gilgamesh epic, where Gilgamesh himself had to close the door, he closed the hatch. It is written explicitly that the Lord closed the door. That divine providence, I believe, bespeaks certain things about God's character and nature and certain what I may even call supernaturalistic elements to the text that isn't an explaining in a way, but a true explanation. Now, another point that I think is worth uh, uh, noting is kinds versus species. Mm. Some people get very hung up on, well, how did Noah bring about all these different species on the ark? Here's the problem. Everybody knows that when Charles Darwin wrote the book, Origin of Species, the big problem is how do we even define what a species is? Mm-hmm. 
That is a challenge on the phylum level. Where are we talking about? Like kingdom, class, whatever we go. Species is very, very hard. But what's interesting is that the Bible doesn't use that terminology. The Bible refers to domesticated creatures, undomesticated creatures, creatures that are so-called clean with respect to cultic law, uh, creatures that are not clean. In other words, it uses language that, uh, uh, sorry, when I say pastors, I mean shepherds. It uses language that people who traditionally work with animals and animal husbandry already know this terminology. To import the meaning of species to the text is actually to go beyond the actual uh, meaning of the text itself. And so when the Bible talks about kinds, one of the big projects going on today for uh, young earth creationists, or some people call them young age creationists, is what is a biblical kind and how do we define Mm. that? And what I also find very interesting is that people want to import a scientific meaning to the text and say, oh, Noah brought X amount of species onto the ark. Well, that kind of scientific nuance is is actually very, very imprecise and very, very uh, not doing justice to the text. It's not species. It's kinds, and it's with very clear evidence to things that creep versus things that walk, things that fly versus things that swim, domesticated versus undomesticated. These are categories of animals that people are very aware and familiar with. Hmm. Uh, that I, I really appreciate you saying that. That's I I really appreciate your perspective on the the text. You're not you you, you don't just follow the crowd. I I like that a lot. So, um, but more specifically uh, to what I was hoping to get at, do you you kind of said you don't even have an answer for it, but do you, you don't think that we should be saying hey? you know, the animals went onto the ark in seven days or. Oh, what I'm trying to say is when you're trying to fit. Okay. Can I back it up just a little bit to go back to a a little bit about my book? One of the things that my book did, see, it all started uh, statistically and numerically speaking. When I, I was a guest lecturer for a biblical theology class, trying to discuss Noah's flood. And I was trying to create student involvement and a reaction where it wasn't just a lecture. I wanted a hands-on component. So we photocopied the flood. And what I wanted the students to do was every time one of the verses talked about God's mercy or grace or redemption or anything to do with salvation, highlighted in green. Mm-hmm. Anytime it was with respect to death and destruction and doom and gloom, highlighted in pink. And then count them up and then Talk to your neighbor and see how your numbers compare to their numbers. In Genesis 7, the parade of animals uses a lot of totalic universalistic language. All the animals enter the ark. Every single one of them, according to their kinds, all of them. The universalistic totalic language is actually in direct reference to these animals being delivered and saved in a disproportionately high amount, which seems to indicate to me that literarily, or what I might say is rhetorically speaking, the emphasis of the text is, look at all these animals that are being saved. Hmm. Who necessarily cares how long it took them to get onto the ark? The point is, 
They are on the ark. They're not going to be destroyed. And look at how much I saved. I saved all of them. Can I repeat that? Because that which is repeated is important. All of them. Because why else is there a double parade of animals? Mm. It goes through all the animals and then it parades them all again. It parades them all again. It's trying to say, look, this is what I'm trying to focus on. When we try to fill in those details, we can speculate, but we, we're going beyond the text. And sometimes when we go beyond the text, we uh, try to answer questions that the text isn't trying to raise. In other words, we're trying to ask questions that the text itself is saying, that's not important to me. This is important to me. I want you to look at this. It's not the art of misdirection. It's not some kind of magician. But for all intents and purposes, the Bible can be clear enough when it needs to be about specifics and particulars. Like when you got Jesus, you tithe of all these different types of herbs and then list them all. Well, who cares what types of herbs they were tithing off of? Well, Jesus did. Specific is terrific. But in the ark, it doesn't do that. It gives these details for a particular reason. And we need to uh, honor the text and the integrity of the text, highlight what they choose to highlight, and to major on the majors and not major on the minors. Hmm. So make yep. the main thing the main thing. Cool. All right. So... This this is the last question I have for you, unless if we go on another tangent. So, the you know you're, you're bringing up these numbers. You don't know for sure what the the writer is trying to describe here, and then like you know with the with the animals, like there's something literary is going on. Obviously, there's an emphasis on, hey, you know, God saving these animals. Some people might say to themselves, hey. You know, if, if we let these numbers of, you know, the sevens and the forties and whatever else is going on, if, if we let them be figurative in some ways or symbolic that, or maybe even just an idiom that, that it's, it should, it's going to lead us to saying like the whole thing's just not an actual historical event. What do you think about that? I think that one of our challenges is now I, I want to be very clear about this. I do believe that the numbers um, have great significance and value. The number seven and the number 40 are all chosen for a reason. They're, they're important numbers. But sometimes what we do is we get caught up in what's called literalism or what I might say wooden literalism versus a literary reading of the text. We try to straight jacket the text. Hermeneutically speaking, I find that challenging and troublesome. Now, if I mentioned June 5th, that's a highly significant date because it's my anniversary for me and my wife. Certain numbers have certain meaning and certain values associated with them because of time, culture, and place. December 25th, uh, July 4th, July 1st here in Canada. But <laughs> these numbers are greater. These numbers are larger, and it's not necessarily that we need to reduce them to their absolute 24-hour uh, chronological week. It's not, it's not that we want to do that, but what I'm trying to say is an astute reader of Scripture wants to look, what is the numbers there for? It isn't just a cue to provide chronology. 
It's a cue to say what is really going on here to read the Bible as literature. Hmm. Great you... literature. <laughs> I, I 100% agree with that. No doubt about that. So, but you do think it's historical. It is historical I narrative. It, I use the term historical referentiality. And, you know, Tremper Longman and John Walton, they said something very, something that I was really able to appreciate in their lost world of the flood. They say, yes, it happened. And then, of course, they point to uh, the Black Sea deluge. You know, they quote Pittman and a few other people about, you know, uh, I'm sure that you're familiar with these books. And then they try to say how this could be a potential geological, hydrological event that might have been some of the source or inspiration behind the idea of Noah's flood. And of course, Stephen Moshier uh, has a chapter there on, on flood geology. And what I find very, very challenging, or what I find very, very uh, difficult to appreciate sometimes is to point to the text as being rooted in history and to say, yes, it happened. But then to try to tone down the geological components don't tend to add up to me. Going back to my quote of Bruce Waltke, even accounting for so-called oriental hyperbole, the author has in mind a universal global catastrophic flood. And he actually states explicitly that recreated the world. And that's, of course, what Peter says. The world that then was perished. It resurfaced the face of the earth. And that's why I find sometimes Trump Longman and John Walton's perspective in Lost World of the Flood so troublesome is they say there's hyperbole, they say there's rhetoric, they don't define their terms as precisely as what I would like them to, they don't provide a methodologically rigorous uh, way of adjudicating hyperbole, and there's no textual evidence to support that in my position with respect to the numbers of Noah's Ark, and then going back to the geology what I also find intriguing is that when a person looks at Stephen Moshier's chapter, uh, there's an emphasis on people like Steve Austin and a, and a certain amount of emphasis on other scholars. Now, I've been in good conversation with Tim Hevel. I think he's a fantastic geologist. He helped co-write uh, the Grand Canyon book with Carol Hill. I've read all of Young and Steerly, and I've read most of Davis Young's books. And I love geology. I love uh, discussing these things with all these geologists. But what I also found to be incredibly intriguing was when I myself personally went to the Grand Canyon and I started to look at the Coconino sandstone of the Grand Canyon, I found that some of the evidence for that particular layer was being uh, represented in a way that I found to be quite intriguing and quite stimulating that caused me to continue to go back and reinvestigate the merits and the scientific validity of what we would call uh, flood geology. Now, interestingly enough, there's something called neocatastrophism that is continuing to come into vogue. And the bottom line is this. Most geological events leave no trace unless there's a catastrophe. Mount St. Helens is an excellent example of that. And Mount St. Helens created a very small scale replica of the Grand Canyon in a very short period of time. 
when we look at neo-catastrophism and when a person begins to engage with certain Christian geologists who have a young earth creationist bent with respect to the Coconino sandstone in particular, like John Whitmore, I find myself continuously going back to resources such as Young and Steerly, The Bible Rocks in Time, The Lost World of the Flood by Longman and Walton with Stephen Moshear's chapter, Carol Hills and Tim Hevel's book on the Grand Canyon, and reassessing the actual data that they are working with because John Whitmore's data provides what I believe to be very strong evidence against a wind deposition of the Coconino sandstone and instead replaces that with a water deposition based upon the incline angular nature of the cross beds and the granular nature of the rocks under under a microscope when you crush them up coarse versus smooth and so when i went to the grand canyon the actual facts of the coconino sandstone thoroughly intrigued me to provide what i would believe to be conclusive evidence of water deposition versus the traditional wind blowing deposition of the coconino sandstone and as you continue to converse with these different people like tim hevel and stephen washir and that the implications of that are of course where the challenge lies some would say that the implications of a Coconino sandstone water deposition must be a Noah's flood. And others say, well, of course it cannot. And that's what I find interesting because even with chat GPT and AI, one of my assignments in class is I get students to tell AI to tell them about the Coconino sandstone. <laughs> and then it'll say, oh, it was deposited by wind. And then I say, challenge chat GPT. And then chat GPT will come back and say, actually, you're right. It is, in fact, water deposition. And then I ask it to I ask it to challenge it again. And then after they do this whole heuristic uh, exercise with chat GPT, I send them on to Tim Hevel's articles. I send them on to Stephen Moshear's articles. I send them on to John Whitmore's articles. And I say, now that you look at these articles, compare your results with the chat GPT results. And it's a very profitable exercise. Interesting. That's really, really cool. Yeah, I, I get frustrated with G, chat GPT sometimes because it's, it changes its mind so easily. Like, stick, stick to a position. Gosh. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So, I, I'll, all that, I appreciate you talking about. Um, everyone, go check out uh, everything that Dr. Burlitz mentioned there. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Appreciate all the, the wisdom and, and uh, great knowledge you have on, on the, the, the flood story. Uh, any last thoughts before or we, we get going here? Yeah, if I could share uh, with you, Zach, I want to share what I consider to be the four most important C's whenever discussing creation. And the four C's are this. The first is clarity. Hmm. What positions are out there? You see, all too often we have narrow minds on the narrow way. Now, you don't want to be so open-minded that your head you know, that your brain follows out. But all too often, people have uh, been taught what to believe and they've never explored it. So the first things first with respect to any discussion of creation is first, what are the actual positions? Gain clarity. The second step is gain conviction. Know what you believe and why you believe it. But the third step is to have charity. Learn how to effectively engage with those you disagree 
in an agreeable manner. The first, uh, for, in the foreword to my book, or at least in the first chapter of my book, I talk about avoiding theological tribalism, mm -hmm. and I talk about avoiding the demonization of those with whom we disagree. When we fail to exercise charity, what we are in fact doing is reproducing the Hamas of the flood, socially speaking. We are actually killing people with our words because the power of life and death are in the tongue. When we begin to put one another down, what we are actually doing is we are recreating societal violence. So the first step is clarity. The second step is conviction, but the third step is charity. Learn how to agree with one another and how to disagree charitably. But the fourth and the most important is curiosity. Find an itch that needs to be scratched and never be afraid to continue to dig deep as you can and to continue to learn. So always, always, always be curious about creation. Awesome. Good stuff. All right. And last stuff here, everyone, everyone go check out uh, Dustin's book here. It's really good stuff. I, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. There's a lot of good stuff. I didn't even know about the, the flood, uh, the flood, you know, Genesis six to nine and 10. So yeah. Um, where can we get your book at? Where can we check out your other resources? Well, um, unfortunately, because of academia, most of my scholarly resources are only available with a journal access subscription mm -hmm. like Atla or whatever. So if you message me, I'm, I'm almost always willing to share with you my own original research because it makes it a lot more easy. But fortunately, my book is available on Kindle for, I think, only 10 bucks, which anybody can afford. And I've been assured that the Hebrew is not inverted, even in the electronic <laughs> format. So that's important. A lot of people's Hebrew gets inverted in digital format. Mm. And of course, you can find uh, the hard copy or the soft copy in any bookstore uh, that's available online or Amazon or whatever. Awesome. All right. Yeah, everybody go check it out and make sure to make sure to follow Dustin, Dustin Verlot here because he's got a lot of good stuff and he's always he's always writing some really interesting articles and and even helping me on. So I've been I've been really appreciative of you. So this has been awesome. Appreciate you coming on. And I hope you have a great rest of your night. Thank you. And I really do appreciate the opportunity, Zach. Thank you very much. Awesome. My pleasure.